The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Dr. Beth Murphy, uh, clinical psychologist and, um, and a retired firefighter. So if you... Um, listen to my show or watched it now, I guess you can, uh, then you know that. Um, for, but for anybody who is new, uh, that's who I am. I was a firefighter and now a psychologist working with firefighters. And, um, and then this um, handsome man next to me, uh, this is John Murphy, my husband, and some of you may recognize him from uh, the... What do, what do you guys call yourselves? The lawyer group. What, what is the we lawyer call, group? Uh, <laughs> the lawyer group is the Fire Court Service Radio and uh, consists of three other attorneys, Chip Comstock, uh, Brad Pinsky, and um, Kurt Barone, and myself. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You guys are a lot of fun. So I enjoy all we're of like, you. We're like you. We're, we're so organized, but we're disorganized. And so... <laughs> We don't know what we're going to talk about until we talk about it, and then we know what we're talking about. Yes. Well, That's so today, your, uh, punchline. Today, obviously, um, I when I realized that um, I had the show this week, um, you know, I started thinking about well, what do I want to do? And I always have things that I want to do, things that are going through my mind, um, situations that come up, um, and and then. I usually talk to John about it. And so John and I had the, this great discussion and, um, and, uh, and then it's like, Ooh, that should be the show. Except then now I'm like going, I'm not exactly sure what it was that I was talking about. Um, Cause there's been a couple things that have been on my mind that I've been kind of mulling around. Um, so, but I know one of them was something that came up um that was uh passed on to me and it was about a workers comp audit and um and the importance of getting people back to work um and 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 it's true i mean so it was basically workers comp whoever does those audits i guess there was an audit and then the information was kind of filtered through a couple people before it got to me and and basically it was uh you know the uh, the uh i guess the important finding there was that there were too many people sitting at home getting paid uh and not working <laughs> and so um so i'm like well yeah, I mean, there are people sitting at home um, and getting paid because they are on uh, a worker comp disability leave um, for PTSD. 
and um and of course then i i there was something else that was like introduced in that conversation that made me feel like i needed to defend myself and it was um around like or and it's not it's not actually that somebody like brought it up and um said you're you're diagnosing too many people with ptsd but um and maybe this was just my myself questioning like um you know am i being objective enough am i uh diagnosing people with ptsd when they don't really have it and and i you know i after thinking about it and talking about it with um the my doctor counterpart where i'm at and my husband i'm like i don't think that that's the case but i do think that there are a um probably a high number of of people with ptsd and that was kind of what i was expecting initially like when because we have this presumptive law for ptsd here in washington state so if you develop ptsd it's assumed that it you know you got it from your job or that it was uh, caused by your job on a more probable than not basis meaning that 51 percent um, of the cause is attributable to the job. So, um, you know, so I thought about it and I'm like, I don't think that I diagnose anybody, um, that shouldn't be diagnosed. Um, sometimes people come in and they're like, I think I have PTSD, but I don't necessarily think they do, but that's not often. Um, but I think that because this is an a door that was opened i think that we are seeing um a larger number of people because before i mean if you think about it it's like nobody was really talking about mental health and now we are um and what was introduced first was suicide and ptsd so it's like if you don't have ptsd then it, you know, you can't go see somebody. <laughs> and so um, it would be nice if people came in sooner um, and, and they came in before they developed PTSD. But uh, but I think that there is this, this high number that we're seeing just because it's more visible right now. And there's a number of people that have, it's like they've gotten the okay to talk about it now. And so now they're talking about it. Um, and I think that those numbers are going to to drop over time. But I I immediately felt when I got this information about the audit, like somehow I was responsible for it because I'm diagnosing so many people. Um, but uh, it that's not really the case. And and I don't diagnose people with disorders that I don't think meet the criteria. I mean, one is it would be unethical to do so. Um, but two, I have a hard time diagnosing people in general because I just hate the whole idea of like slapping a label on somebody. Um, but that is just that kind of what you have to do if you're um, working in any healthcare field and you work with any insurance, then you're required to diagnose and and if you're talking with other uh practitioners within the healthcare field then that's like kind of the beginning of the common language and the discussion around what's the best for that individual 
So, um, uh, with that said, it was like, when I was talking to John, I'm like, what is this deal with, um, auditing? And I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was kind of baffled. Like what, what is too much and how do they say it's too much? And, and how do they know? I mean, the workers comp here basically is like, they, they barely, I mean, I don't think they deal with, um, PTSD very well. I don't think they deal with any mental health issue very well. Cause if you were out on a physical injury, um, they sometimes will open up or will allow, um, a claim for a, um, like a, a mental health issue, like depression or anxiety related to, uh, the injury. And, and, and then they, and it would be covered because it, maybe interfering in the treatment for the physical injury. So, so there are different avenues for mental health, um, but nothing about workers comp is set up for mental health, anything. So um, I often find the system kind of perplexing. And then this was a new one for me. Um, so, um, so what, what they, what they want is for us to send people back to work um, to modify duty. And, um, and so it has, it, and it poses a challenge because some of the people I work with don't even want, like just thinking about going into the city where they work is enough to send them into a panic. And so, um, I, I do believe there are times when it is best and most healing for people to go back to modified duty so they could be around the people they feel close to. Um, but sometimes I think it can be harmful um, based on the light duty positions that are often available. Um, and, and also can be like logistically challenging. So uh, I don't know how it is for your departments, um, but I know in Washington state, there are a lot of firefighters that live a long way away from the departments that they work for. And we're talking like hours. So we have, a, you know, like both states, obviously we have a Western side and an Eastern side, and we have uh, mountains in between that. And, um, and that could be you know on a good day a two-hour commute on a bad day a four-hour commute or in the winter you may not even be able to make the commute so um you know it's like so that's challenging if you're like duty you're supposed to go every day um and then and when are you supposed to get treatment <laughs> and um so there are a lot of challenges and logistics around that so i just found myself being a little bit baffled by the whole thing so i had a conversation with my husband as he was trying to get out the door to something else. <laughs> and I'm like, I got to ask you a quick question. <laughs> so honey, not very quick. Here you are. Honey, so, and, and I know like that conversation, like led to like several different things, but I know like one of them is like this whole thing around uh, L and I and auditing and so forth. You know, I always thought that workers comp was created to support the worker <laughs> that's injured on the job. 
So that's it, premise. It doesn't that's feel premise. like that's really what's going on. Well, I think one of the things is that, you know, Washington state has labor and industries, which is fairly tightly regulated with, um, you know, through the, through the rule of law and practice and those sorts of things. You okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so the, but there's a lot of like third party administrators of said law, um, which I think adds some confusion to what the law is supposed to say and then what the law actually says and then how it's interpreted by <clears throat> these third party administrators, which shall go unnamed. But I think we have a good understanding of what they are. So, for example, if, um, and I, and just to sort of clear the air, I'm a, a healthcare provider. Um, in the state of Washington as a mid-level physician's assistant. I've been doing that for almost for, seems like ever, but I think it's like 45 years ever since I got out of the Navy. So um, so I've been steeped in the L&I sort of culture about the whole concept of L&I is to assist the worker in injury recovery, um, integrated back into work, a return to work program, and then, um, you know, final release through, either medical evaluations or surgery, surgical interventions or necessary surgery or whatever it takes to get the injured worker back to work. And then sometimes um, the injured worker cannot go back to work. They're permanently disabled. Um, and as wearing my lawyer hat, um, I had a couple of cases with dead injured loggers that were paralyzed um, after they got hit by a log. And, um, and so, you know, the, the legal argument was, you know, what's the level of disability? And, you know, in general, it's 100 percent, right? They can't work in their profession as a logger and they get through this vocational training. And, you know, most of the time, the vocational training, especially if the logger lives in a remote community, um, there's no job opportunities for them. So there's, you know, zero salary that comes in as a result of that. And then their disability payment, either in a um, paid over time or a long term or one-time lump sum is basically the end of, you know, their relationship with labor and industries. And it, and I don't agree or disagree with that. I think there needs to be a cutoff somewhere. I think where the the issue comes in is say, for an example, um, somebody comes into my office with a fracture and, um, and we see a lot of people that come after they go to the emergency room, um, you know, they get diagnosed, x-rayed and treated, and then they come to our clinic to, uh, for continuing care and eventually return to work. And so the process is that we, you know, we basically evaluate them. We contact their employer. Uh, we set them up for a series of visits, um, sometimes physical therapy uh, in our clinics as part of that. Um, sometimes it's referral out to a specialist, like a hand injury, uh, as a hand specialist or an orthopedic injury, it's an orthopedic surgery, a neurologic injury. We send people um, to the Northwest Brain Center, um, that's not it, something at the University of Washington where they deal with neurotrauma and trying to get, you know, and that's a long-term issue. So they try to get people back to work as far as they can. On the injured worker side, when you have an obvious injury, um, there's a, a, I think, 120-day period of time that they'll come in and they'll do an audit, quote, unquote, uh, to see what the status of the injured worker is. So 120 days is generally what, four months. And so they're taking a look at, you know, if, if they're not better in four months, why not? And so um, is there, it, and then they get into this sort of 
you know, where they're, they push us as providers to send these injured workers for IMEs, independent medical exams by a neutral third-party physician to take a look at all the records that's been created from in our organization and outside uh, specialty. The IME doctor takes, you know, basically does a medical evaluation and determines whether uh, some of the claims are, um, um, they can claim them as disabilities or on the job and they get continued care or some of them are not. So sometimes people will come in with multiple injuries accumulated over time. And so they try to specify what injury is a claimant injury and what injury is not. And so and we don't always, as providers, we don't always agree with that, but there's a process to appeal that stuff. So, and that's when lawyers get involved uh, because sometimes the issues are so egregious. So it's like, you need the lawyer up um, because you're just getting screwed over by the system and, um, and I'll help you facilitate that process. The, the issue with uh, mental illness, PTS, depression, and all the things are the things you can't see, right? So, you know, having depression is not like having a fractured arm. It's just basically an, an um, nearly invisible sort of injury that's only de determined and detected by professionals like Dr. Murphy and her cohorts, right? The, the problem is, is that many of the, like the third party I hate to say this, but I think that in my, in my, and I'm going live on this, but I, but I think they're into the, let's protect the shareholder and not the patient. And so there's a, from my perspective and experience and, you know, a long time, it's like if I wanted to order an MRI, for an example, on a patient who needs an MRI on their knee, um, the LNI system is more prone to say, yes, let's get them an MRI because I'll, I'll call them up and say, look, this is what I'm seeing. This is the clinical evidence, yada, yada, yada. And so let's get it. The third party people are like, nah, we don't think so. You know, you need to wait 12 weeks. They have to go through 12 weeks of physical therapy or they got to, you know, go see a physician and, you know, a, a specialist before we'll honor the, the request. And sometimes I don't even honor it. I just had a, a patient come in yesterday. I was working in the clinic who's been four months, um, for a back injury that I wanted to, uh, um, a um, MRI on his back and they just won't, won't do it. And so I called up the claims manager. I said, look, you know, and I went through the whole medical co component and the, the claims manager said, well, that makes sense to me. And so we'll allow the MRI. And so my, my question, I guess, was they're not medical professionals that are on the other end of the phone. There, there are some, um, the ones that work for the third-party administrators um, are more interested in their shareholders than they are the patient, from my my perspective. And I think the system is is broken in, in a lot of different areas. The mental health component of it is we can't see it. You know, the claims manager, we can't see it. You can claim it. But, you know, unless there is irrefutable evidence that somebody has depression or they have suicide ideology or they're alcoholics or they're drug addicts or they're they have pts um and and i know that our state has a presumptive illness and you know dr murphy and her cohorts do everything they can to try to get you know in un, un what's the word i want conclusive proof that you know these individuals uh, really have an issue and need to be on light duty or a disability or whatever they have a they have a high bar to jump over what, Beth, what was uh, the word Murphy's that you used? I'm sorry. You said uh, in, in unrefutable. 
proof irrefutable. In, irrefutable by teeth. And I couldn't, and I couldn't, I couldn't say the word, so I said conclusive evidence. <laughs> yeah, irrefutable. irrefutable, irrefutable. I can say that, um, but I yeah, like you said that, and I don't know if you noticed. Like I got a look on my face, <laughs> and I'm like, if anybody's watching, like, what? They might have you seen me make a face. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think I that um, the bar is high. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah. The bar is but, high to jump over, and even in presumptive illness, what's an irrefutable truth? Irrefutable truth. What's your question? Uh, like when it, yeah, so you said, unless there's irrefutable proof of proof. PTS, uh, whatever, suicide, whatever. Right. I'm like going, so what is that irrefutable proof? Does that mean that you... Dr. Murphy and your cohorts, doctors, um, and other providers that deal in mental illness or mental wellness, I guess, or behavioral health, has conclusive evidence that these people, through testing, you know, something Ooh, that's conclusive. objective. Conclusive. Yeah. What is conclusive? And then I finally said conclusive because I couldn't what? pronounce the word irrefutable. <laughs> and so I tried my best. And yeah, now but we're, what, we're, what is conclusive evidence? That's, I want to well, know. That's, that's what, I don't know. That's what you're going to. No, for the I physical injury, I have conclusive you. evidence. I have an x-ray. Yeah. You, on the mental illness side, you have testing, you know, uh, parameters. You have history. You talk to the patients. Um, you know, you test them on, you know, paper-wise. You put them through treatments. Um, they get better. I mean, there's lots of different uh, standards that, and testing that you guys use. Um, my irrefutable proof of a broken arm is an x-ray. Which no, is like pretty darn irrefutable, right? You either see darn. a fracture or you don't see a fracture. That is correct. Right. <laughs> yeah. But soft tissue injury, let's do soft tissue tissue injury. You can, you know, you can have a soft tissue injury that's disabling. And, um, you, you know, you can put your finger on it. I push my finger right there. It hurts like crazy. But there's no bruising. There's no swelling. There's, you know, so it's like a neuropathy or it's a different. It's a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah, and that uh, different stuff doesn't symptoms and signs. show up unless you do an MRI or, uh, I mean, usually an MRI, sometimes a CT scan will show it, but an MRI pretty much shows that soft tissue stuff. Ultrasounds do as well sometimes. So okay. it just depends yeah. where you're looking. Yeah, So yeah. going back to where I was going before we got to irrefutable, inconclusive and conclusive proof. Yes is presumptive illness. And presumptive illness in our state, although we say we have presumptive illness law, um, we there's a high barrier to jump over. I mean, you just, so the, the case in point is a cancer case in the city of Bellevue with two Bellevue firefighters. Years ago, many, about five years ago, right? So they claim cancer, we've got cancer on the job. And it became a battle of the scientists and the medical professionals um, and a, um, taking the case all the way to our Supreme Court, and finally said, yes, you are correct. You do have cancers, which they did, and this falls under the presumptive illness law. And so, you know, you get certain benefits and whatnot as a result of that um, uh, that law. The, um, the way that I understand and the way um, I've experienced the few number of people that have come in for, um, you know, stress and whatnot at work and certainly 
talking to you about um, PTSD and that, those sorts of things, um, you have to prove it, right? It's just not presumptive, like the state's going to say, oh, yeah, you know, um, you know, John Murphy's got PTSD. We're going to put him on a disability and that, you know, I can go off on a disability or I could go to work in a different capacity or, you know, whatever. Um, you have to prove it. And I think the way that we prove it, um, like the, on the medical fracture side or the, this, the bad knee, is through repetitive testing, through repetitive counseling sessions, you know, through the sort of the trials and tribulations that healthcare or uh, mental health providers go through in order to prove that their patient um, actually has this disease. And you could probably describe it better than I. I think the other thing we probably want to talk about, we'll, I'll write a note here, is like return to work and um, light duty uh, provisions because I think one of the things we talked about in my in our garage discussion we had yesterday was the, um, you know, how do you get people back to work? And for certain people, are there light duty provisions uh, that are required or mandated? So well, let's not talk about that now. Let's okay. talk about that after we have this presumptive illness discussion about irrefutable proof about people with mental issues. Yes. Uh, that's kind of funny. I was just looking at the, um, uh, you know, because you said something about like, it's a high bar to jump over to, to you know, prove that the PTSD, the the illness, the disability, whatever um, is uh, work related. But see, that's the whole point of having a presumptive law is that it is assumed that the disease is an occupational disease, meaning that it it arose out of the job. It arose out of the. <coughs> the um the the conditions and environment of the job which means that the high bar should be on the side of the employer or whatever third party group wants to deny it it see that's the thing is that it's it's like it's supposed to be well it's like innocent until proven guilty so it's like you have an occupational disease until right. somebody can prove it's not and um and the high bar is supposed to be on the other side but that's not how it works and i think that i mean i i don't i mean i know my experience with workers comp um i didn't have any problems with mine but it's like i also really didn't when i mean when i got to the point where i'm like i have to get treatment for this i didn't wait for workers comp to say oh you're okay to go get treatment i went i took control um and uh and i i think and i i don't know i maybe i was lucky when i i went through the system i mean because my department had a third party insurer and i know that um i heard complaints from other people that had dealt with them, you know? So it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I was just lucky going through it, but I also took charge of my, my care. And I was a, I don't usually like to bother people, but when it came to my need to, to get 
um, evaluated and get treatment started and get back to work, I am a pain in somebody's neck somewhere. Um, it, I think I've seen that guy in my clinic. <laughs> so probably yours too. So, right. um, so I think that one of the things, uh, Dr. Murphy, that we need to understand is that there's the, my obligation, I think as um, a provider and yours is as well, is to pre present the presumption of illness, right? Presumption is these people have mental, they have, P let's just say a PTS, they have PTS. And, and the presumption under the presumptive law is that there's a presumption that they have this disease that they caught on, uh, that they um, obtained while on the job. But it's a, and then it goes, it's like tennis, right? You whack the tennis, yeah. the PTS, D tennis ball across the net. And on the other side is the, the other side has to prove it's not. It's so it's what's called a re, rebuttable presumption is that they can rebut the presumption issues that you're presenting to them. They can say, no, it's yeah. not on the job. Well, they, the person they can, the but illness. yeah, I mean, and you're, you're right, but it's like, but that's not what it's supposed to to be i mean i know it's not supposed yeah. to be but and and I, I have is. to say like you're saying pts and so i think we need to like clarify some things here so you're talking pts meaning post-traumatic stress and and i'm saying ptsd so the presumptive law applies to ptsd so you have to have a disorder so post-traumatic okay. stress disorder and the disorder um comes from the fact that it interferes in two or more areas of your life. Um, so like it makes it so that, you know, uh, you're on the verge of a divorce at home. Um, you can't engage in any of the self-care strategies that maybe you did before or your hobbies, um, whatever. It's like you, don't, you can't do anything enjoyable. You can't work. Um, or you go, but you can only do it if you like shut everything down. And then even then you're probably not the safest to be at work because your judgment is often impaired. But anyway, but I, I just wanted to make that distinction for anybody that's listening. So, um, I don't, I as said earlier, it's like, I don't like to diagnose. I don't like to put that label on people, but it's like when we're dealing with um, diagnosing and, and working with any insurance, including workers comp, um, we have to go off of what the DSM-5 says. And, um, uh, and, and PTS, interestingly, post-traumatic stress is like everybody experiences post-traumatic stress. Like nobody's immune to that. It is a completely natural response. Essentially, that's our fight flight response. So when you're exposed to anything traumatic, you're going to have a reaction. You can't do anything about it. Um, and then, and then you may notice that you experience some of the symptoms that, that show up in the, uh, the, the DSM five, the, I always mess it up. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, so, uh, so, you know, so it's like, um, so when you say, and I know you're saying PTS, because I know that there's a big thing about trying to change the, the language and not call it a disorder because everybody bristles at a disorder. And I'm like, it's a word. 
and it's it's i don't know like a necessary evil or whatever but people are like well but it's it's an injury and it's like well it is an injury and we can actually use those terms um we can call something a post-traumatic stress injury um, and that is what people who have less than 10 years on the job can qualify for a workers comp claim so if it is um you know like they went to a, a call that was just so horrific and and it and it impacted them in some way um and so that they were having all the symptoms of like ptsd um or or they had some response and seemed like they got better but then you know six months down the road they start really struggling and now they're like i don't i don't know what's wrong with me because you know like they didn't have anything recent happen but they had this one event um that was within the past year so it's like under under those conditions then they can um file a claim for a post-traumatic stress injury so the um the ptsd the presumptive law for ptsd has that requirement of uh 10 years paid firefighter um or 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 um or you yeah, could be a police officer and then go into the fire service you could so it's having that um first responder um so you have to be a first, paid first responder for 10 years um and and it could be like different departments so you could have five years in one department and then five years in another but the caveat is you have to be paid and um and then the other is um which is uh not always enforceable it kind of depends so if you have a department that does pre uh, uh pre-hire psychologicals um, it, then it pretty much says like, you need to have had a pre higher psychological evaluation, but, um, not all departments do it. Most do. And over a certain size they do, and they are, um, by the, I mean, how it's written here is like the, um, the, the wording says that any department that has over 50 uniform members needs to be doing pre psychological or pre hire psychologicals and i and i i think for the most part the departments here do that um but the interesting thing and, and this is like one of the areas where it really gets like bogged down is that the pre hire eva psychological evaluation is almost always done by a psychologist and so it's like a psychologist is completely qualified just say, yep, this person's good. <laughs> They're good to go. I mean, and and typically they would they would do the evaluation and then they would classify them as low risk, moderate risk, high risk um, for issues after hire. You know, so it's not like uh, the psychological evaluation provides like a diagnosis, but the assessments that are used are. Um, the same assessments that might be used to diagnose somebody. So, um, but basically, um, the psychologist is is basically saying this person is basically free from a disorder, or if they have one, 
we're not telling you, but we're telling you a risk associated with hiring this person. And so a psychologist is completely qualified to do that. Now, under the presumptive law, um, they decided that a psychologist wasn't good enough for that. Um, like, uh, and I can't tell you how many conversations I've had around that. And it just always like riles me up. Um, you know, like now all of a sudden we're not qualified to diagnose. Like we, we can't recognize that this person has PTSD. Um, and, and we can't even begin to, to figure out what kind of treatment they need. I mean, that's, that's basically the, the stuff that gets said. So the PTSD presumptive law requires, um, the involvement by law, the way it's written, a psycho, a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, and they need to be involved. They, they need to um, essentially uh, like say, oh yeah, the psychologist diagnosed PTSD and yes, that's, that's it. And, and then they need to act as the attending provider. So, um, which, you know, they see people essentially for 15 minute med checks. So they do their evaluation and then they will see them every month, maybe every three months, maybe for, you know, 15 minutes. And um, which is not enough time to know or evaluate somebody for PTSD or to even begin to do treatment. And, um, and they don't always seem to care whether that person is seeing a psychologist or not and um and then 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 their uh criticism towards psychologists is that well we don't know when they need medication and it's like that's just not true one is like our whole education is about um diagnosing severe mental illness and um and recommending treatment and the research still supports um, the, the, the treatment with the greatest efficacy is the combination of medication and therapy. So, and those therapies have like changed a little bit in what is considered the best therapies, uh, particularly when you're dealing with trauma. So, um, you know, it's like, we recognize that. And the thing that we have a hard time with is that most of the firefighters that we as psychologists might work with, they don't want to take medication. So it's like, even if we recognize that medications could be beneficial, um, they don't want to take it. So then we have to figure out, well, how do we support this person? So, um, so basically this, the, the way the law is written, um, it already puts a hurdle in place. Um, because one is no matter how many psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners are listed on the workers comp site there are not that many that are actually practicing for a lot of reasons one is they could have just been a one-off where they had a patient and they acted um, on the behalf of that one particular patient as an attending or they could have even been like a referring uh, provider and so then they end up in the system. Um, they may have practiced, but no longer practice. Um, they may just flat out 
practice but not deal with workers comp anymore because there are uh, quite there are there are a few extra hoops to jump through um so um so when you have somebody who uh needs to file a claim it and most of the time people don't they don't go to a psychiatrist like people don't say oh i'm really struggling i need to go see a psychiatrist they usually say i gotta go see a therapist and a psychologist gets kind of rolled in with that and um uh but a psychiatrist doesn't because they're a medical provider um and so so we're the ones that they come to first but then we have to refer them somewhere um we need to help find them someone who will be the attending so that is like a huge hurdle um and uh and so at the state level, like going through the state workers, comp, uh, labor and industries, they will accept um, a medical provider. Any medical provider can be an attending. Oh, like my husband, John there as a PA. So my husband, John as a PA who knows psychology only because he's married to me can be the <laughs> attending provider for a firefighter that has a presumptive PTSD. Um, a, a podiatrist could be the attending physician. Um, it, seriously, it's, it gets ridiculous. Um, but, um, you know, but the thing is, is that the law is written to say psychiatrist and psychiatric nurse practitioner. Now, this is an area where third party administrators uh, when they're involved, um, might deny things or they might um, create more stress. Like, I can't tell you how many people filed a claim and then because of the way the law is written and the third-party administrator's approach to it, they say, we're not going to pay anything. So you can use your, you can use your sick leave, but we're not going to pay anything until you find a psychiatrist or psychiatric nurse practitioner to act as your attending. And then all they read because they have PTSD. So they already are struggling with accepting that. And then it affects how you think and interpret things um, and how you perceive things they see that as an attack on they don't believe i have ptsd so and then it creates a great amount of stress because now they've just been invalidated they're struggling with something that they're trying to struggle with accepting themselves and now it's being challenged because they're following the law and they're like screw it i'm just leaving <laughs> and then they never never follow through with their claim. Um, they never fight it. And and the thing is, is that they're being forced to fight at a time when they don't have the capacity. They don't have the capacity to work, to go to the fire department, to a job that they one time loved. They don't have the capacity to go there and do it anymore. And now they have to fight to prove that they have PTSD and and to find the unicorn provider because that's what it seems like i had a client who called 80 
psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, 80 before he found one. That is unconscionable. And, and he at least cognitively was working at a higher level than most people are when they're struggling with PTSD. Um, and so that it becomes an insurmountable, insurmountable thing. And then there are all these forms. And every time they get a forum, I get a phone call because they're in a panic. They're like, they're screwing with me. <laughs> they don't believe me. They blah, blah, blah. And then I'll read the forum and I'm like, oh, this is pretty standard. Um, but they don't see it that way because their perception of things is pretty screwed. So they're supposed to work through the system and, and they constantly feel attacked um, through this system. And, and then I guess the other side is like, we talked about that irrefutable evidence and the conclusive proof. And that's the thing is that they're dealing with something that is not seen. And so on the outside, they might be viewed as like, like they might be um, sitting around with family and friends and laughing and somebody could come along and take a snapshot of that. And then that gets used as, see, you're fine. Well, it's like they had a moment. They had a moment where they were finally able to laugh or they um, followed through with a project that they were working on, on their off time with someone else. And somebody gets wind of it and says, oh, well, you're good enough to work. It's like, no, what they did is they stayed involved in something that they enjoyed that benefited their community that they were working with someone else on. And so they were able to draw on that other person's energy and, um, and it, they were being forced to not isolate because that's what happens. And I tell people, one of the things that I tell them is you need to get out, do not isolate, do something, um, interact with people, find a way to laugh. Um, find somebody who can push you to do something that you would normally do and find enjoyment because it's important to do those things because it doesn't take a lot for people to just kind of like suck right in. And then it's like when they do that, like getting them back out again is so hard and you're not going to get that person back to work or to light duty, not anytime soon. Or, or they could go out and they come back. I mean, I don't know, like with physical injuries. I mean, I think that this is true for physical injuries too, at times where you can see a lot of improvement and they may be at the point where they could go back to work, but then maybe they pushed it too hard and then they had a setback. And right. So yeah. like that's common with mental health stuff. It's like, because anything can trigger you, particularly with PTSD is because they don't always know their triggers. And that's one of the reasons why avoidance is such a big part of that. You know, it's just easier to just stay away from people, stay away from places. Um, you know, like if you're not like out among the living, you're not going to get triggered. And, um, right. and you just, you don't always know what's going to trigger you. So it's not like you can say, oh man, if I do, you know, 10 reps instead of eight, I might hurt myself. This is like, 
I might go to the grocery store and somebody honks a horn and it takes you a week to recover. Um, I mean, so it's like, you just don't know. And it's different for everybody. Um, and so it's, they're just like so many hurdles to just even get the claim open and to keep it open. Um, and I find a lot of my time at the beginning of working with somebody with PTSD who has filed a claim is to deal with this fallout from all these hoops that they have to jump through and this feeling that they're not believed. Um, and, and then they can become quite uh, cynical and can almost sound conspiracy theory like, cons conspiracy theorist like, um, where, you know, everybody's out to get them. And, um, and in a lot of cases, that's not true. But I do know some cases where that might be because, you know, sometimes there are people in the organization that believe it's time for somebody to leave. And, um, and so, you know, they will push. And when somebody's struggling with a mental health issue, it's like they don't have much reserves to fight that. And, and they misread and misinterpret things and they take it as a challenge on what they're experiencing. And that, and again, this is something that they're probably struggling with accepting themselves. Like, how could I be feeling this way? How can this cause me to act this way or feel this way? Or how can, you know, like I should just be able to think my way out of this. Um, and it's just not true. It doesn't, it's well, that's not the resiliency. that true. Yeah. I mean, resilience like, of the firefighter. Yeah, so I, I thought you brought up a good point about, um, they really are when they go into the fire service, firefighters are some of the most resilient people, which is why they're able to do so much, see so much and, and operate at such a high level until they can't. <laughs> and there's a lot that goes into that backside but i mean they go in with a tremendous amount of resilience and they deal with things that most people don't want to and and aren't able to and would in all likelihood have one exposure to it and develop ptsd firefighters can be exposed over and over and over again and um and it, not that they're not affected but it doesn't lead to ptsd I mean, it's like they have to figure out what to do with it, which is part of like why I'm here. It's like, I don't want to always talk about like, this is the bad stuff, but it's like, well, these are the things you can do. There are very, I don't, I don't want to minimize things, but it's like the, the things that you can do are relatively simple. Um, it's just that we're not taught them. And we're not supported in doing those things. And, and that's the thing. It's being taught, having the tools and being supported. So anyway, sorry, got now what you were going to say. <laughs> You're like, how do I follow that? <laughs> how do I follow that? With a drum roll, please. I think that, you know, one of the things that you brought up sort of, uh, sort of at, um, about four or five minutes ago was like returning to work. Mm -hmm. getting people uh, re-engaged in society where they want to isolate and they feel better alone and they're really mm -hmm. will be worse off. 
So, and so let's take this in two stages. One, um, the whole mantra about uh, the LNI system is to get people back to work. Right. And so when I have somebody come in with a physical injury, I usually do a return to work form. Um, I usually get a job description from the employer and they tell me what they can do. And so, or they don't tell me, they tell me what their job is. And so I try to create a return to work form that allows them to return to work because there's an economic uh, impact to the injured worker if they're not working in that. Um, and so if we do a, a, a light duty provision, then, um, you know, they can return to work or they can work in a limited capacity, um, go through physical therapy or work reconditioning or, you know, that sort of stuff or surgery or whatever it takes to get them back to work. But at least they're interacting with people at work. They're, you know, productive, they're earning an income. Um, and a lot of uh, people that I see, unfortunately, are single parents that um, and mostly women, a lot of women come in who are injured on the job because of it's, it's a high repetitive uh, activity, long hours, 10 to 12 hours a day. And some employers um, don't have light duty and they're not required under the law to create light duty if they've never had light duty before. So if you work for a large multinational company uh, whose name we shall not mention here, uh, they do have light duty provisions that will accept uh, people to come back to work, um, but they're not very accommodating <clears throat> in the work force on, on what their light duty requirements are. <coughs> so, excuse me. So then they develop other injuries. And so you're compounding a problem that, you know, should have never been compounded if you just paid attention to what I told you to do, but they don't. Sometimes uh, we'll have people go back to work if you're working, a, you know, a 14-hour shift or a 12-hour shift that you can go start out by working six hours a day doing a job. It's not necessarily the job of injury, but it's a job. And so, and I always call up, you know, the safety supervisor or somebody HR in the department and say, look, I'm going to return, you know, Murphy back to work. He can only work six hours. Uh, he can do these sorts of things. Can you accommodate that sort of limitation? And they go, yes, we can. How long are you going to be doing it for? And I usually give them some time periods. Like it'll be for a couple of weeks. We're going to get him into physical therapy. He's going to go to work hardening or work conditioning. Uh, or he's got surgery, so he's going to be out for six weeks uh, not being able to do anything. But for the interim, he can come back to work. I think one of the things that usually it works, you know, and sometimes people will come in and say, my employer doesn't have light duty. They won't bring me back to work because they got nothing for me to do. And I'm sitting at home chilling. And so there's an economic thing going on here that, you know, does labor and industry pay part of their salary? Uh, do they combine time off or PTO with the organization if they have any? And, and a lot, unfortunately, you don't see this in a lot of white collar industry. You see it all in blue collar where people are working hourly and, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. So this is a huge economic deal. For people that have PTSD and you try to reintegrate them back into a workforce, the question is, you know, how much, uh, how, how much of a conversation do you have with the employer? So, we all have a pretty good idea what a firefighter does on the job or an EMT or a paramedic because we've done it ourselves. <clears throat> and so, you know, engaging in a conversation with the employer is how much medical information can we tell the employer? So can we tell the employer that, you know, old Murphy's got PTSD, we need to return him to work in, a, in some capacity, but he can't do 
this. He can't go on that call. He shouldn't be at that station. Is there are there other activities that he that he or she can do, like fire marshal's office or inspecting or work with the building and coast department or something that's non-combat that doesn't put him into a stress situation. Um, although they're, you know, they're highly sensitized, I think, to stressful situations as you described earlier. But you know, how much of a conversation should you engage in? I think, and with the with the employer saying, what do you know about you know Murphy's condition? Is that is that mm-hmm. a question you could ask? Yeah, and they well, say well, we, know, we know everything. Yeah, well, so when um, so the employer can't ask for they can't ask questions about a person's condition, mental or physical, unless you're requesting accommodations. And then when you request accommodations, then that's when you say, you know, Murphy has been diagnosed with PTSD and um, uh, it would interfere in their ability to do these aspects of the job. Um, So yes, in those, in those situations, they have a, a, that they have a right to to know that the other thing is like if they are doing if they're using workers comp then um there are several people within the organization that know their diagnosis like they have a right to the records um and that was a that's a big deal when it comes to mental health um i mean i think it would be a big deal regardless but it's like people don't People don't usually have problems with other people knowing about their physical conditions, but when it comes to their mental health conditions, and this, you know, may be part of the stigma around it, you know, they don't want anybody to know, but the, um, uh, the employer can uh, request those records. And um, in some, uh, some departments, like if they have the, um, third party administrators. It's like they act only as, I mean, they're just administrators. So the records might go to them, but they ultimately end up with the employer and the employer can request those records, whether it's through the state or they're self-insured. So, um, but it's like, but then there are a very limited number of people that are, um, eligible to know, or to have uh, have that have access to that information, and um, this is something people probably don't don't know. But for every, um, like they should know who in the organization has a right to know their medical information, um, and then if people outside of that know, like for every person that that knows about their medical condition. Um, it can be like a $500 per person violation against the department. So mm-hmm. it's like if, if the chief can know and one of the deputy chiefs can know and one person in HR can know, then if, if there are like, if the, if there's an, the other deputy chief knows that's $500 that gets paid to the, to the, the worker. And then if like everybody in HR knows, then it's like how many people are there? That's five hundred dollars each, and people don't know that. Um, and but and people don't know who has a right to know their information. Right. 
Well, I think the fire service, I've I always have, said there are no secrets in the fire service. Confidentiality is zero in the fire service. So, firefighter. Yeah. So I think it, and sometimes, you know, I know that, um, because I, again, you know, if you've been gone for a period of time without a physical injury and you're coming back to work all of a sudden working in a different capacity, um, where you've been a firefighter, people are going, well, how come Mur Murphy's working in the fire marshal's office when he was on the line six months ago and he doesn't have, you know, a physical injury? Yeah. What the hell's the happening? Is, and so people, people will create people a room. Yeah, they, uh, they know. The people so, but I think sometimes, sometimes the, the fire, like the Murphy guy, will talk to, you know, other firefighters to quash the rumor mill saying, look, you know, I'm out on a, 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 a disability, mental disability, doesn't have to say what it was. So I took some time off and now I'm back to work in a sort of a reduced capacity for a period of time while I heal. It's just like if you broke your ankle, you come back, you know, under uh, limited duty for a period of time, then you'd be full duty. And my expectation is I'll be full duty. I'm fine. I'm just, I don't have to go through this process. Um, and hopefully, you know, 99% of the empathic people in the fire service go, well, good for you. What, do we, what can we do to help you? It's the 1% that are the total a-holes that are going <laughs> to, you know, create this sort of disruption uh, for the chief or the organization saying, we, you know, we don't want Murphy coming out on a call with us because he's incapacitated, right? He doesn't have, he can't make a decision. He can't. So you don't put those guys back on the line as captains or, you know, have to make decisions process until they're ready. And that may be a slow integration or reintegration back into your department um, in various capacities so you can come back full duty. Yeah. Maybe you won't come back full I don't know. It's yeah. it's a crap shit, you know? Well, And it's interesting, though, is that it's more likely that someone will be in a position, like will be, uh, well, they could, any one of the positions um, in operates, they could be, you know, on on tailboard, they could be a driver, they could be the officer. Um, and their crew knows, like the crew knows that there's something wrong. Um, and, and they will, in most cases, they will go a long way to protect you. I, I mean, I, I know, um, I, I worked with a guy who was an officer and um, he probably ran calls for a year past longer than he should have because his crew watched out for him. His crew helped him. His crew enabled him. And enabling in this instance is not a good thing. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I think that, you know, when we talk about like, who knows, like we might there are like, a, I guess, a couple of different ways of looking at it. One is some people are extremely private and they would never admit they were struggling with a mental health issue. But the fact is, is that it is very visible. It is very visible. There are telltale signs. And usually it's a change in behavior. Like somebody used to be a certain way and now they're acting different. Um, so it's like if they don't, start talking about it like people around you are going to know and and that's one way to destroy trust and confidence that they may have in you is to have them watch you go down the rabbit hole of making poor decisions and um yelling at your patients because you've lost your compassion um 
and it, you know and withdrawing you know uh it, even in the station so it's like people will lose confidence in you if they don't have the courage to say i see there is something going on let's talk about it um and and i think that that that's changing to some extent um we're seeing a slow change um well i think it, if i can interrupt yeah if you take a look at it not only from the line side but from the management side you know sometimes management is in a cave like they just don't have a clue what's going on in their department right so the only way they hear about stuff is if they're out you know sounding visiting the stations visiting the firefighters taking a pulse on the organization especially when you have somebody coming back to work that has you know um, ptsd or whatever and they're getting and they know they're getting reintegrated back into the workforce and so i think you know the captains the uh, the battalion chiefs maybe the lieutenants certainly the fire chief and, and assistant chiefs that whole rank structure and HR, if you have one, needs to be intimately involved in sort of the day-to-day operations of the sort of reintegration program for bringing these sort of injured workers back to work, right? So again, the physical limitations are pretty obvious, right? Um, I got a I got a boot on, uh, sprained my ankle really bad. I'm not going to be able to climb a ladder, but I'm getting better. So does the fire chief have to come out, you know, every time you're on shift and say, "Hey, how you doing?" No, you don't have to do that. But I think that when people come back <clears throat> with, you know, a mental issue and they're re- reintegrated into work, I think the chief has an obligation to go out and do a sound check um, on the injured worker and say, hey, you know, how, how's it going? How are you doing? What can we do to help you? You know, offer that sort of sort of um, umbrella of assistance, I guess, a safety net that would mm-hmm. allow the person to say, you know, I, it, I just can't do it. I'm, I need to go back, you know, to Dr. Murphy, get a reevaluation, you know, come back to work and maybe a lesser capacity for a period of time. I want to be here. I mean, you need to have, you need to engage in that sort of level of conversation because as you said, it's, it's far different than a, the, um, than a, you know, fracture, broken bone or dislocation or anything. It's, and it takes a longer time, I think, to recover. Uh, I just maybe based on, our experience together um, and you talking to me um, um, sort of abstractly about some of your clients. Um, the uh, I get it, you know, I mean, um, and I know that, you know, when I was working as a chief officer, it was like, you know, you either work or you can't work. So if you can't work, then stay the hell home. You know, we need, we need people mm-hmm. uh, to do the job. Now it's more, Hey, um, you know, we have people working for us now and they have all kinds of issues that we need to make at least reasonable accommodations. And that's another, you know, term, um, you know, can the department make a reasonable accommodation to accommodate somebody coming back to work with, you know, a mental injury? Can I say that? Um, with a D on the end. You can, say, you can say that. You can say um, that. that <laughs> needs to have a lot more compassion. And I think the, the departments need to be more flexible and, um, and, you know, and I always, I hate to say this, but you bought it, you own it, right? So you bought the firefighter, you own the firefighter. And so it's like, you got to take care of the firefighter in order to, you know, help that person get through their crisis. It's probably the only major crisis they'll ever have in their lifetime. 
And, um, and it's just like we do when we go out into the field, you know, we intervene in people's crisis, you know, mm-hmm. in the best, most compassionate way possible. Why don't we do that for our guys and yeah. girls in the yeah. organization? Well, and that's, and that's a, a good point. So like to what you said is like, um, you know, the, the chief officers, like they don't always know what's going on. Um, you know, and I, I think that that's probably a, it's a problem, like as the departments get larger and larger, I mean, it's like, you can't go to every station, <laughs> every, no. for every shift. Um, right. I mean, so it's like, there are definite challenges, but you know, it's like, if one of their firefighters gets hurt and and is in on disability, whether it's a physical injury or a, a mental health injury, then they then yeah, they should like check in with that person like at the beginning and say, Hey, I understand that, you know, you something happened and and, and you're, you know, off off duty now and I just wanna check in see how you're doing and let you know that, you know, we're, we're here for you if you need help. Um, but that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, I'm sure that there are departments where that might happen, but I don't know of any department around here that does that at least on a consistent basis. Like I've heard some stories like here and there where it might happen for, um, physical injuries. Um, I, I don't know anybody that's done it for, you know, PTSD. Um, I think people, I think they're afraid to talk about it. Why? Well, yeah, I think that that that's one issue. And they just but, don't want to be embarrassed. Yeah, but the other thing I will say is like what you were saying is that like when they come back, um, like if they come back for a light duty, that you know the chief should go check in and see how they're doing. It's like I can tell you that if that's the first time the chief has checked in on them, then that person is going to interpret that as they're questioning whether I can do my job and they want to get rid of me. So it's It's like, do not go visit your worker when they first go back, unless you saw them when they first went off and you checked on them at least once during their time off. Um, I would say like a minimum of three times is a good rule of thumb. That's the, the Beth Murphy rule. The the Dr. Murphy rule is check three times. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I, it's just, I mean, especially when it deals with mental health, because it's like, there's so much uncertainty. And I think a lot of it comes down to like the, the individual themselves is struggling with accepting what they're going through. And I can say, I understand that. Like, um, I talked about this before and John, I told you, like, you remember when I came to you and I said, I have PTSD. Yes, I do. I didn't know. I didn't know how to say it. I mean, I'm like, I'm a mental health professional and I didn't know how to say it. And and you didn't didn't say it. You didn't say it. You said, (laughs) I I took these tests. (laughs) And, um, and, and so you went through all of the deal and I looked at you and I go, is that you? You go, yes, I have PTSD. Yeah. I'm going, okay, I already knew that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I yeah. know that, you know, there, yeah. but I you, think that, you knew that there was, there was sort of the disclosure was, was a shock, but yeah. you sort of went around about way to get to tell me, but you told me all these symptoms that you found on this person that you were evaluating. 
and that person was you. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot easier so to like talk about somebody once removed, like my friend. <laughs> yeah. I have uh, a friend. Yeah, but it's hard, and it's like I'm a you know I'm a I'm a psychologist. I know all this stuff, and and I still find myself like questioning. I mean, I definitely when I was like in the midst of all that, um, just like questioning, like. It, is it real? Is that for real? Am I like making this up? Do I really feel this way? Why can't I just think happy thoughts? Um, I, didn't, I don't think I, I didn't go quite that far. But um, but yeah, I mean, I questioned. And so it's like, it, so people are struggling with just like coming to terms with this as as an issue. And, um, and it's hard to find the words clearly. I said, here, look at this. I'm like, look at this sheet of paper. Right. Um, even I couldn't find words. And, um, and so it's like, you're asking a firefighter who's, I mean, it's like, is there a more macho job? Um, than firefighter. Uh, and you're, you're asking them to like, admit that they're struggling that they can't handle something and um and and the most common thing i hear is i help people i don't need help and right and i get that i totally get that um and so um those people they need support and so they you know so like going at the very beginning of all of this we were talking about uh a, accommodations going back to work on light duty and right. and and it, this all started because of like the audit uh that i was told about god like going really they audit that stuff i mean of course they would but um you know so it's like uh the organizations they i mean not every organization is that way right so not everybody can accommodate accommodations um yeah that's great yeah, yeah but you know, but there, you know, a lot of the fire departments do. And, and sometimes, you know, when you go back on light duty, you're going into a made up position. It's like, I know they just made this position up for me. I was on light duty and um, I was doing research on uh, escape routes from the city. If there was a big, if we had the big earthquake. Um, like, how are we going to direct people out of the city? <laughs> I mean, right. I'm like, pretty sure that was like kind of a made up thing. I mean, I'm sure it was something that was needed, but. Um, well, I think, you know, one of the things about the, the I know that when um, we created like duties because we had long-term people that basically took advantage of the system and they were staying out long term and, you know, either didn't go to their doctor or they convinced their doctor that they couldn't work or, and like you said earlier, you know, a lot of our firefighters don't even live in our community anymore. So coming to work every day and going home every day is an inconvenience for them. So oh, yeah. try everything they can do to try to get out of it. And I know for, and I, you know, I say this sarcastically, but when I go down to my old department, I see a firefighter at the desk behind the glass screen in the lobby. I always say, uh, hey, Bob, um, light duty? <laughs> you know, and I raise my eyebrows. I go, oh, yeah, I had surgery. I had this, that, and yeah. the other thing. 
And so I'm going to be here because they hate light duty. Um, when especially if they have to go to work yeah. every day, as opposed to being on their, you know, sweetheart shifts and stuff like that. I think, you know, one of the things, again, we have to be careful of is with people with, um, you know, mental disability or mental illness or injury. Sorry, I get the verbiage right here. <clears throat> you got to be, I think we need to be very selective on putting them into what sort of like duty position mm-hmm. they're going to be in. So <clears throat> if they have to go to work every day for eight hours a day to fulfill some obligation to the department, they may not work. Yeah. Um, if they go, if they can go to work two days a week and be an instrumental member of the organization, I think that's good. Yeah. The other part is <clears throat> there's a lot of employers that don't accommodate the therapy or the treatments. So if you're putting back on light duty, now I always caution when I write on my return to work form that, um, you know, if they work a six hour shift, as an example, then they in an eight hour day, two hours of that is going to physical therapy or two hours of that is going to work hardening or work conditioning mm-hmm. or, you know, or two hours of that is going to their therapist. Um, and that's specifically implied in, you know, the return to work form. And I always talk to the employer about this is how this person is going to come back to work and they need accommodation maybe over and above, you know, putting them on a six hour workday plus two hours in a, in a, in a rehabilitation stage. So I think we need to be as providers, we need to be specific. I think the employer needs to be um, understanding of that. And if they can't do that, um, you employer, well, the employee doesn't work, you know, they, they, or they work for eight hours and then they have to take, you know, two hours to go to therapy away from their kids or their home or, you know, so it's, it's the system is not a perfect system. Uh, I don't think it ever has been. And I don't think it ever will be because it's, you know, it's human nature uh, that interferes with the process. And so um, I think, and especially if you're focusing on uh, somebody who has a mental injury, uh, it's even harder to describe, you know, the, the needs and necessities to get them healthy to go back to work. Um, still under therapy. I mean, it's, you know, and, and you've always said that PTSD is not a terminal disease. Um, it's a period of time in your life that, you know, it, it occurred, you know, through therapy and other modalities and that sort of stuff, you'll get better. Um, but I think, you know, we as, as, uh, as employers and certainly the system needs to make sure that these individuals have every opportunity to get healthy and get back to work. Yeah. The other well, problem is sometimes they're not going to be able to go back to work, you know, and that's a whole other whole other issue is how do you get to that decision that you're so disabled because of your illness or your injury that you can't go back to work. And for many people, that's a, that's, a killer. I mean, yeah. you know, well, I can't work now. What am I going to do? Yeah. Cause I've always wanted to be a firefighter. I'm yeah. not going to go flip burgers at McDonald's. Yeah. So you've created another stressor for people that may needed a more aggressive therapy on the front end. Yeah. Well, and then you just, you just brought up something else is that um, our state does not, I, I don't know what it's called per se, but um, it's like for, um, like if if an employee has to retire or uh, retire or leave because of a disability, um, and they are eligible, um, so if they can't work their job of injury, then they are eligible uh, for in some cases like retraining 
or there are um, like if they can't work their job of injury, then there are, um, you know, then there's evaluations to see what jobs they can work. So our state does not protect the the income of the worker. Like, so, you know, if you think about like, well, what does a firefighter make? And then you talked about like, because everybody says this is like, I'm not going to go flip burgers at McDonald's. Like that's like, everybody says that. But the reality is, is that if that was the job that you had, like if the only job you had before becoming a firefighter was working at McDonald's, then they're going to go, well, there's a job you have skills for already. So you can go work that. Well, you don't make anything near what you made as a firefighter, but in Washington state, they don't protect you in that way. Some states do like they will not um, suggest a job for you or retrain you for a job that is not close to what you were making in your job of injury. Washington state did not pass that law. So, um, so they can recommend that you work any job. So it is true. You could go from being a firefighter to being told, well, the only job that, you know, you qualify for that we're going to recommend is McDonald's. I, I don't think that they will, would do that, but they could. And I, and I know that, well, I think uh, I know a police officer that was um, one of the jobs that was presented to them was a barista. Barista with a gun? Yeah, no, no gun, but a barista. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was really insulting. And so again, it's like you have somebody who is not thinking their clearest, their interpretation of everything is through a lens of, of trauma and PTSD. So they hear this, they see this, they take it as an attack. And well, one of the and things that the state of Washington sense. does, yeah, one of the things the state of Washington does do is they, uh, at some point in your recovery period, if there's, it's a bleak outcome, you're not going to be able to go back to the job of injury. They do have vocational counseling services at this level of the state to see what you qualify for. Yeah. Um, so that's a, I think that's a feel good thing for the yeah. state to do is we're doing everything we can to preserve your right to work, but it's not going to be probably at a salary level that you're used to, right. you know, working under now. And sometimes there's a danger. And um, so they say, you know, we can send you to school. You can do this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's usually in the trades of, uh, so the question is, you know, can you go to welding school or can you go to diving school or can you go to these sort of um, schools that will pay at least parity to a firefighter? And most of the options are no, you, we're not going to pay for you to go to diver school or welding school or go to be a linesman and those sorts of things, which is pretty reasonable um, to do if you if you so choose to do it or, you know, do clerical work or do administrative work or go, you know, go to law school. My God. Who, who do we know that did that? It wasn't me, but it was somebody else, right? When he was on disability. So, yeah. but I think that's at their own initiative, right? So I think that if you're sort of in that, the end stage of your job and you're still productive, you know, but you have this sort of issue that going back to the fire service is going to trigger you and you're going to be incapable of doing pretty much anything. 
you know, should you not on your own volition go out and say, look, I, I know that I'm not going to be a firefighter. I'm so disappointed, but I think I can do this or this or this or this and let the L&I system run its course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there, if there's going to be a disability, then, you know, take the disability. And then, um, you know, it's, you know, and I think earlier than, than later, then seek your new vocation. And so, you know, if you want to go back to school, that probably is a good time to do it. So maybe L and I will pay for it. Um, and I think that, and, and so I said earlier, and when we started this, we need to probably wrap this up pretty quick. Um, you know, you can, I would, if you're in a jam and you're not getting any satisfaction and your healthcare provider is not, can't help you or doesn't help you or, you know, because he's getting pushback from the, from L and I, I'd lawyer up. And I know that, you know, people hate to, I don't want to get a lawyer involved. It's just, it's, you know, it sort of um, betrays the employer. But I can tell you, there are some great L&I lawyers in Washington State that will help you facilitate and navigate through the system so you have a good outcome at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think that's that's important, establishing that relationship. Now, it's a little bit complicated to, to um, I don't want to go into that right now, but I think the outcomes, uh, when you do lawyer up, um, third-party administrators start talking and and the third party administrators start getting things done. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, unfortunately, that shouldn't happen. Huh? You shouldn't I'm have sorry. to get an attorney involved to have, I know, but do their job. a lot of times I get records requests or I do, I put stuff on um, forms that are um, sent to me by L and I, and they go, isn't there, is there an attorney involved? Cause they're completely expecting because now I'm getting this sort of paperwork that they know that there's some, they got to do something. They always ask, is there an attorney involved? And I always say, yes, <laughs> there is an attorney involved. It's not me. I can't, there's a conflict of interest in there. Mm-hmm. But I know a ton of good L&I attorneys, right? And so I refer these people out. Um, I give them a list. I don't say, go see, you know, Sleazy Bob, the attorney. You know, I give them a list and they can pick, you know, whoever mm-hmm. lives closer to that. So at, at some point, um, you know, you need to get, if you're unsuccessful or things aren't progressing in the way you think they should be, you know, talk to your healthcare provider, uh, talk to your case manager, say, look, you know, things aren't going the way I would expect them to, to go. And then, um, you know, and then, you know, if all thing, everything fails, then I retain the services of an attorney uh, who's well-versed in uh, labor and industry issues and let them work their magic because I think it's going to grease the you know, it's going to make it a lot easier for you. And especially if you have, you know, a mental injury, it's going to take a lot of pressure off of you um, uh, to get your, your claim resolved and you in a better position. That's my two cents. Yeah. Well, as wearing I, six different hats. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really disagree with what you're saying. So, I mean, I, I think like with, mental health stuff is you know one is um you need to you need to know well first off you need to know your right to file the claim i mean some people are like well i'm not i'm not going to file it because i don't you know i don't have a right to but it's like i mean in most instances you do even if you even if you struggled with a mental illness before you got into the fire service it's like if that mental illness is under control, like if you were military and you had PTSD and you got a rating for PTSD, 
but it's under control and you're not, you know, you're not affected by it. Um, then you go into the fire service. Um, so the fire service does not have, or it, it didn't, we're trying to change that. Um, but it, it really didn't have the support to um, support people that had um, mental illness coming into the fire service, but it's like, it doesn't matter. Maybe it was PTSD. Maybe, maybe it was a bout of depression. Um, you know, when you're younger, um, uh, whatever it is. And so then, um, but you're fine and you've been fine. So you get into the fire service and you're fine and you're fine and you're fine and you're fine and you're fine. And then 10 years out or 20 years out, you, you know, are not fine, you know? So it's like, again, it's only, it's only 51%. So it's like, you, you live in a vacuum. You had a whole life before the fire service. You had some trauma. Everybody has experienced some trauma throughout their life. I think they, um, like in the DSM-5, um, the statistics that they quote, I think is like 80%, 80% of people have experienced a trauma that meets the criteria for the you know, trauma for PTSD. So we call it like a big T trauma. Um, but um, I mean, that's a lot of people. So nobody, nobody goes through life unscathed. So, um, so the thing is, is that just because you struggled with something before doesn't mean that you don't qualify for um, PTSD under the presumptive law. Um, but I mean, this is, this could be a whole nother topic, a whole nother show, but I mean, I think that it would be appropriate to, uh, broaden the, um, the, the mental health aspect, like people should be able, like if they become, uh, anxious and depressed, um, and don't meet the threshold for PTSD, they should be allowed to file a claim because um, for instance, um, this is like new, some of the new research around depression, you know, like um, researchers are looking at depression as like a metabolic syndrome that often is, it arises out of the body being depleted. So I can't think of a job that would deplete the body more, <laughs> faster, than a firefighter because sleep is the number one way that somebody gets depleted. And so when you have somebody that's chronically uh, sleep deprived, um, they're going to exhibit symptoms of depression before they exhibit symptoms of anything else. And so they should be able to, you know, take that as a, you know, file that as a, a worker's comp because it is the nature of the job and how it's done that is causing that. Um, and even if they had uh, a bout of depression earlier in their life and um, resolved it, you know, a lot of times people become depressed because of, of you know, dealing with stressors and um like too much all at once so again it's like a depletion their resources are depleted so um i think they need to expand 
um, what they are going to allow. And, and then we can get people in sooner. And, and then that would minimize the amount of time that they would have to be off. Um, but uh, anyway, that's like, that could be a whole nother topic. Um, yeah. So let me, I, let me just interject, oh, go ahead. interject here. There's um, one of the, the, the um, things that I see is um, on the private sector. Um, I have people who, who have had an injury that may be two or three months old. And I said, well, how come you went into file earlier? And they go, well, we're, we're afraid to file um, because we'd be fired. And um, mm -hmm. I said, well, that's you know, illegal. theoretically, you're on a disability and that's illegal. The fire service and, and a lot of employers don't want you to file because it increases their uh, L&I, their insurance rate, because there's a claim against the organization for an injury on the job. Yeah. The fire service is less inclined to re and that's and i would classify it as retaliation but there are cases out there where in, injured firefighters have filed a claim and they've been retaliated against and in the light duty part they've been illegally terminated um they're usually from areas that don't have a union to represent them and whatnot so they're and they're you know at will employees so they're they're kicked out of the organization so it sets this sort of precedent that i'm afraid to file <clears throat> for a claim because I'm going to get terminated. Mm -hmm. The um, I think in our state, I have not had any um, reportings anyway and no legal cases that I could find um, of retaliation because you filed a lawsuit. I'm sorry, you filed a worker comp claim for an injury incurred on the job. Um, I, unless uh, work, it's PTSD. Unless there's PTSD. The, um, I worked with a L&I attorney on one uh, case of a firefighter um, who was being denied benefits by her employer uh, because they kept challenging um, the right, um, the injury that was reported on the job, which was pretty blatantly the fire department's fault. Um, and they fought and fought and fought and fought. And so I retained the services of an attorney, L&I attorney for my client. And, you know, and all of a sudden things turned around uh, fairly rapidly, but they went out of their way to harass uh, the claimant, um, um, you know, while at home and while rehabilitating and driving around town and, you know, setting up this sort of um, uh, investigative services to, to follow the client everywhere. And it was like intimidation. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that happens. That's a rare occurrence in Washington state. Yeah, but it's not it's, as rare. I don't want to say it's a common occurrence everywhere else. Um, but it, it happens. And I think, you know, you, you know, people need to be prepared, you know, for the challenge to file a worker comp claim, uh, in, in some areas and, and even in some departments, that's yeah. all I got to say. Okay. Well, I was like, I don't, I don't think it's as uncommon as you think, um, because I know several cases like that were from, um, physical injury, but also like for mental health injuries where, um, where someone from workers comp investigated um you know one was for physical injury and was not a firefighter um but uh she was actually frightened because there were because she was liter literally being followed and um and you know this car was like parked in the neighborhood and and you know was not 
nobody knew whose car it was and and uh and and it would show up at places where she might be and um and she was scared and she felt harassed um but i also know some um uh first responders that um had been um followed uh or or their um i mean i realized that it's fair game like your social media but like their social media posts were used against them um even though they were completely out of context and outside of the time frame um you know so it's it's like they they like are looking for reasons to not pay or to catch you in a lie or whatever um and that's you know it's and i know that there are people out there that abuse the system so um you know getting back to the very beginning of all of this is that making full circle yeah so it's like yes getting people back to work can be a really good thing um but there are there are circumstances which it could be bad because it creates a hardship or it uh, puts them in an environment where they're not supported. Um, You know, like, um, so for instance, um, if your department um, and not every department has this, but um, you know, some departments have like dispatch as a light duty option. Well, that's not a good place to go for a firefighter. I mean, number one is firefighters deal with like emergency situations, right? That that's part of the problem. Um, and um, and I mean, it, that's good and bad. Obviously, is like they can deal with that. It's kind of like the after, like they don't know what to do with it after, and they don't really get the support for that. But regardless, it's like you can deal with a lot of stuff because you go out with your crew on this call, and you you deal with whatever you whatever you got to deal with and whatever is whatever you're faced with you know you're there with your crew and in most instances um your crew is like your second family and there are instances where that's not the case um there can be a lot of animosity um which you know that creates a a different challenge um but it's like most often uh, your crew is like your second family. And so the, you come back and you do an informal debrief of what you just went through. So you sit around the binary table and you talk about the call and then you go out for another one, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you're going through it with someone and you're able to talk to that person to some extent about going through that. You know, maybe you're not talking about your feelings, um, because I've been told many times I'm not going to talk about my feelings, but I can guarantee you that they do. Um, I've even made people cry. So <laughs> I was always told that you did a good job as a psychologist <laughs> if you made somebody cry. Well, um, you made your whole class cry at FBIC I did, one year. So I think I did. you did hell of a It was a great job, and it spurred some – I know it spurred one individual on to do some pretty amazing things. So I like to, in a, you know, like think in a small way, I contributed to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, um, so, you know, you, so you have somebody, so you have that, you have that like family type environment. So if you take that person and you put them in um, 
dispatch. I mean, there's like the obvious reason why that wouldn't be good is because it's taking emergency calls. And, and the thing is, is that one of the things that one of the reasons that firefighters are affected by calls in the first place is because it's highly emotional. So if the call is highly emotional, then that's, that is one risk factor for that call to stick with the firefighter. So high emotionality. The other thing is if there is, um, if it reminds you of someone in your family or your child. So, I mean, like de dealing with elderly and children, I mean, especially children. Um, and especially if you have an elderly person that you're taking care of or watching out for, um, and then if you have a child, right? So those are things that you have in common. So if, if there is a, something that connects you to that person, um, something that's highly unusual, it's like the more unusual something is, the more likely it is to be remembered. So what you do with that makes a difference because it's like it can stick with you because it's just so like out of anything you could have imagined. And and there and I've heard a lot of those stories. Um, so there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. Um, and then repetition, like going to the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Um, that's a great way to lose your compassion. And so, you know, I you hear about, especially in the bigger cities, of um, the overdoses. And, and it doesn't matter, like any large department, I've heard this from firefighters in large departments in particular, but... It could be the smaller ones too. It's like you might go to the same person like four times because they've overdosed and you've woke them up with Narcan. And then that, and then it's a few hours later you're going back to them again because the hospital doesn't want them. And so they're not getting transported. They're not getting help. You're just waking them up and just prolonging their life. And so um, that repetition of calls, it's just, um, it's hard. So those things stick with you. Um, so anyway, so there's that aspect, but it's like, so back to like dispatch, dispatch is not good for a lot of reasons. One is it's still dealing with emergencies. It's dealing with high emotionality and it, it's kind of like you might be in a room with a bunch of other dispatchers, but nobody talks, nobody does things together. Nobody gets a break together. Um, so nobody's talking about like the high volume of really stressful emotional calls they're getting. Um, so it's like, that would be the worst place <laughs> to put somebody. Um, you mentioned like the fire marshal's office. It's like, that could be a good place. I mean, and it's like that person could be doing light duty, um, there and it would give them an opportunity to go by their station and connect with their crew and, you know, so that that could be good, and it keeps them out of emergency situations. So um, that could be good. Um, I didn't know that this was a thing, but I just learned that um, some departments will um, have people come back on light duty where they're they're like there during the days um, with the crew. Um, or, well, they're at the station, so they may not be only with their crew, but they'll be at the station and they'll be doing like whatever support work you can do during the day, but not running calls. 
And that could be a good situation. Um, and so, um, and then there may be other things. I mean, when I was on light duty with Bellevue, I worked in admin. So I, I did inspections uh, for, you know, one of my light duties. I, I worked in admin doing like all this research stuff. So like I went through all the accreditation evidence things and made sure it was up to date and identified what needed to be updated. I mean, so like I, I did, I did some of that work and I was in admin. Some people go to training. Um, so, you know, it sounds like there are, if the department's willing to, um, like if they have positions and they're willing to create positions, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity to do things that will work for the client. Uh, or the the worker. Um, so, and that's the thing I was going to say about um, accommodations is that the um, making reasonable accommodations, and this is from the um, uh, the Department of Labor website. Like they're talking about making reasonable accommodations, and it's like um, it's it's an interactive process. So it's like you could find a position to accommodate an employee and then the employee may go and then find it doesn't, it doesn't work for them for various reasons. And so they need to be able to go to whoever is helping set this up for them and say, this is not helping me. Um, and so it requires a dialogue between the worker and the employer. So there's input that the uh, providers give, but it's like the, the worker and the, the, the employer and the employee, they work together to find the accommodation that is best suited for the person and the condition. And so, um, I think in a lot of ways, it's easier to do that when you're dealing with somebody with a physical injury. Um, it is, and I think you touched on it, but it's like a lot of the people that make the decisions around reasonable accommodations, um, they really don't know anything about mental health and they're afraid to talk about it. And, um, and the employer is often uncomfortable talking about it too. Um, or I'm sorry, the employee is uncomfortable talking about it and, and what their limitations might be right now. And that's the biggest thing. This is like, this is a refrain I have for all my clients is you need to, whatever it is that you're saying, I can't, Whatever struggle you're having is you need to add right now or yet. Like, I can't do that yet. Or um, this is too hard right now. <laughs> you know, so it's like you just need to add a time limit to it. Um, but it's like there are a lot of things that they may not be able to do right now. Um, and that's why that discussion between the worker and the employer needs to happen so that it really can be a healthy accommodation. Um, because too often there are, are these accommodations made that put the employee in a position of 
um, increased stress, but for a different reason. So um, there needs to be dialogue. It needs to, and it needs to be an interactive process. It's not a done deal. You put somebody in position, you need to be open to move them positions um, and, and get them back because it, in, in most instances, it is healthiest for the individual to be back to work and around their like second family. Um, now there is an issue sometimes where just going to the place where they um, develop their PTSD. That's a bit, that's like one of the hallmark symptoms of PTSD. It's one of the avoiding symptoms, like avoiding people, places, and things that um, remind you of the incident or incidents. So it's like sometimes just going into the city is too much. Um, and so it's kind of like, as, as we've talked and I've listened to you, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's any any like remote work, <laughs> um, light duty, I, you know, like, and I, and I was thinking, I'm like going, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's like, if you think about like the fire marshal's office, I bet there are a lot of phone calls that they have to make. And it's like, you, you don't have to do that in the office in the city. You could do that from home. Um, I mean, so it's like, it's like, I think people have to kind of think out of the box when they're dealing with mental health, you know, and, and when you take into consideration, like what the prominent symptoms are, um, there's a lot in the city that can trigger a person. Um, you know, there's the sights, the sounds, the smells, um, the, the um, I did say sounds, but you know, it's, it's like hearing horns, hearing sirens, um seeing being reminded of like every call that you ever went to because you just passed it um i mean so there's a lot of reasons why it would be difficult for somebody with ptsd to go back into the city for light duty and that could set them back um it it doesn't have to be irreversible and uh, i had this discussion with the doc um that i work with um, that, you know, maybe, maybe part of the therapy is actually getting them to come into the city for therapy. Maybe their job is coming in to do therapy instead of doing virtual or, you know, going to a different office, but coming into the city to do therapy. Um, because that's something that a lot of people are avoiding. Um, and then they could come into the city and then we could talk about it. So um, anyway, I, I think there was like some more I was going to say about that, but I feel like that's a good place to stop. And I know we've been talking for a while. So um, I, I think we can have a, a offshoot of this discussion from because there were different areas, obviously, we could talk about, but um my, I don't know. Did we address like what we set out to address? Well, I'll go back to my saying, we didn't know what we were going to talk about until we <laughs> talked about it. And then we knew what we were talking about. So I think we're at a good point 
um, talking about, you know, the sort of the, the L and I issues and, um, mental injury. So I think we're, I get, I feel better now. I mean, as a provider and I don't see a lot of PTSD, um, patients coming in as mostly physical injury, but the ones that you and I uh, collaborate on, um, and I've been their primary, uh, it's pretty, you know, pretty, um, low energy on my part, only because the system is sort of grinding through its, you know, how do we manage uh, dealing with uh, people with um, mental injury? And the system is just not set up um, right now because of, you know, just, I I think it's an educational thing. It's a new thing. Uh, We're recognizing the fact that (coughs) other than physical injury, there's mental injury. and, And I think the system needs to accommodate that and, and it's educational stuff. I know that you talked that, you know, only psychologists um, or psychiatrists are the ones that can make these diagnoses. But the issue is, I think, you know, in any in any state, if this is happening to you and you're a provider, um, you need to get a seat at the table. And I know that it's a political thing, and most providers are not political animals. Uh, but if you want to make a system work in your in your state. Uh, or your jurisdiction, you need to barge your way in and say, look, you know, we're the people, you know, we're the providers that make the decision. We're the providers that do the therapy. We're the providers that make the diagnosis. Um, you know, and yes, psychiatrists are, have their place mm-hmm. in medicine. Um, but, you know, our place is at the, we need to seat at the table. Um, and I, and I, I know that's could be a whole nother, um, session the politics of mental injury. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, and that would be a good one. Maybe I'll write that down so we don't forget it. There you go. And then yep. um, well, <laughs> and and we'll I, talk I, about it. Next time. I, by the next time we talk about it, I'll be a, an elected politician. Oh, there you go. For the, well, yeah. for the past two years, I've actually been, um, I've actually testified before committees for um, changing the language in um, not just the presumptive law, but um, but in general, where mental health is the ends up being the primary issue, like in which it can happen. So sometimes somebody gets a claim open for mental health because it interferes with their physical um, rehabilitation, and then they may physically rehabilitate but still need to work on the mental health. And so the language would be to add psychologists as attending providers for mental health claims. And and that's appropriate because we're the ones that people come to and, and we are trained to make the diagnosis, to recommend the treatment and, and to refer and work with other medical professionals I have referred people to, um, well, it's like there are not enough uh, psychiatrists that are taking new patients, but psychiatric nurse practitioners, or sometimes it's referring them to their primary doc for medications, depending on what it is. You know, if they're depressed and they need an antidepressant and they can't get in to see a psychiatrist, then I'm like, well, talk to your primary care doc and see if they would be comfortable prescribing. 
Um, if it's more serious, I mean, for PTSD, if they have a lot of symptoms that need to be managed and it looks like they may end up needing a combination of medications, which can happen, then it's like they need to see a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. They need to see somebody that is well-versed in psychiatric meds. Um, and that might be a bit unreasonable for like a general practitioner or a PA or anybody else, any other provider that can prescribe. So um, there are we cases bring that where- up next time we have our, our next yeah. session. Yeah, but anyway, so, but it's like, I'm perfectly capable of, of recognizing that and making those appropriate recommendations because it's always in the best interest of my client and um and i will i will fight for my client if i have to but it's like i don't i don't like to have to do that a lot because it's hard enough dealing with people's ptsd and that is trauma and ptsd is what i see and um when you have to throw in this other stuff it's hard so and, it, and it's hard on the providers which why you're seeing so many providers dropping off so Anyway, but um, yeah, so there there are solutions out there. Made me think of some solutions. So um, which would be another show. But um, I was thinking well, I'll about. Write, I'll write that down. I'm thinking about things that we can that we can implement that you know the practitioners can implement and the departments can have a hand in implementing that would be in the best interest of their employees. So you. You treat your apparatus well. <laughs> so how about treating your people better? Better. Yeah. All right. So there you go. That's it for tonight. So I hope all of you who listened to this got something out of it. <laughs> well, I certainly did. It was a good dialogue, I think. And I appreciate yeah. you um, jumping in and, and being part of this. Well, thank you for my invitation, even though I'm, we live in the same house and I'm downstairs, <laughs> practically yeah. in your basement. So um, <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Murphy. I appreciate the invitation. And I'm sure over dinner this evening, we'll be having more conversation about your future shows. I'm sure we will. And we probably need to record that conversation. At least take a note. Yes. So good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more.